Welcome to Hello from the Pluriverse, a podcast about sharing the stories of designers and design thinkers from different backgrounds around the world. I'm Leslie-Anne Noel, a designer from Trinidad and Tobago and a professor of practice at Tulane University in New Orleans. The name of our podcast is a reference to Designs for the Pluriverse by Arturo Escobar. In our podcast, we explore the stories of designers from many different countries, women designers, designers of color, and designers from the LGBTQI community. In our interviews, we explore how place and identity affect their work, what they say about design, design thinking, and social innovation, and what advice they would give to non-designers who are using design methods. We'll continue to share more stories throughout the series about designers from many different worlds, from our little corner of the world, at the Phyllis M. Taylor Center for Social Innovation and Design Thinking at Tulane University in New Orleans. Welcome to another episode of Hello from the Plural Reverse podcast. My name is Max Esperance. I'm a one-year Master of Business Analytics student at Tulane University. I am a design thinking graduate assistant working at the Phyllis M. Taylor Center for Social Innovation and Design Thinking. I plan to be a business intelligence analyst in the future and work my way up the corporate ranks at a major company. I'm also very interested in real estate, art, and sculpture. I was born in Haiti and I have a military background. Now I'm going to pass it to my co-host, Michaeline Engelmeyer. Welcome, Michaeline. Thanks so much, Max. It's great to be back. I am a first-year student in math, um, the Master of Public Health Nutrition program, and I am also a design thinking graduate assistant working at the Taylor Center. Uh, I hope to one day work in the area of international nutrition as a registered dietitian. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Mozambique, which was re- really sparked my public health journey. So today we're going to be listening to an interview with Jose Cotto, who is the Collaborative Design Project Manager at the Tulane School of Architecture's Albert and Tina Small Center for Collaborative Design. Among his many responsibilities in the Small Center, he works on various design projects, fosters partnerships with Tulane University departments and community stakeholders, and leads a seminar course on public space in New Orleans, guiding Tulane students to explore the connections between our, our created environment and social dynamics. This interview was originally recorded in 2019. Michaeline and I are here today to hear what Jose has to say uh, about his approach to design thinking. After the recording, we'll be here to discuss our thoughts and what we learned and hopefully spark some discussion for our listeners. Personally, I'm looking forward to hearing Jose's thoughts on growing up in the Great Brook Valley, a small housing project. Michaeline, what would you say you're looking forward to? Uh, about this interview. Uh, well, I'm interested to hear more about how Jose got involved in design thinking, um, since each designer's path is unique. So, uh, yeah, I just can't wait to hear how he found himself in this field. Sounds good. Let's take a listen. Awesome. Well, my name is Jose Cado. I uh, was born and raised uh, in Grapebrook Valley, which is a, a small public housing project in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and I I always mention, uh, I always get that specific when I say where I'm from because that place definitely uh, shaped the, the way that I perceive the world. Um, growing up in that environment uh, is certainly what led me to, uh, to the work that, I'm, that I do today. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, am, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, and then, went on to uh, pursue a degree in uh, actually in mathematics originally because uh, I thought I wanted to, to be in the math world and, and quickly found out that doing problem sets all day was not, uh, not how I wanted to spend my time. And so I switched over to design uh, in architecture and then uh, ultimately found my way down to New Orleans, uh, to Tulane University for my master's degree in architecture uh, and immediately got kind of plugged into the design world here in New Orleans and, and kind of what uh, what folks were doing uh, in the community uh, outside of the, the Tulane University kind of bubble that exists um, and and found, found strong connections and relationships to folks uh, uh, that were doing interesting uh, interesting work in the city and important work in the city. Uh, that ultimately uh, 
pushed me to sort of get involved with the Tulane, uh, then Tulane City Center, now the, the small center for collaborative design, uh, which is where I currently actually work. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a sort of full circle journey for me since, since I arrived in New Orleans, uh, having moved down here in large part because of the work that the small center was doing uh, and wanted to be involved in that process. And then uh, after some years of sort of doing my own work uh, and, and spearheading a youth design and build program here in New Orleans, uh, I sort of found my way back into, into the Tulane orbit uh, where, I, where I'm at now as uh, a project manager and uh, working to sort of help amplify and, and uh, rethink how, what our public programming uh, sort of uh, community engagement uh, work looks like. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you so much. It's interesting that you started with mathematics. Um, can you tell me a little about like the link of how like you shifted from mathematics to design? Like was there an experience that happened or? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I originally uh, went into, into college as a math major in part because I always had incredible math teachers growing up. Um, looking back at sort of my my educational arc the first you know the first 10 years or so were not were not very uh i was not the most engaged uh mm -hmm. scholar uh if you will uh and uh it wasn't really until sort of high school where, where i had a teacher that really challenged me um and so uh I remember showing up late to her class on the first day of class and after after class she kind of pulled me to the side and was like you're never going to come late to my class again like she didn't mm -hmm. she didn't she didn't ask a question she just like made that statement and it sort of stuck uh that that sort of stuck with me um and so i, I had this idea that i wanted to sort of be in the classroom and sort of be that other people um in terms of of helping uh young people uh particularly in inner cities um sort of be able to see the best versions of themselves. Um, and once I got, once I got into college, it, it was sort of, uh, it was this totally new environment uh, for me, right? I, you know, growing up in a small public housing project, not knowing anybody that uh, had gone on to college or university uh, and sort of being, you know, not too far away from home, just a few hours away, but sort of in a totally different environment, right? With the sort of mm -hmm. natural, uh, natural landscapes and, and rolling hills in the distance. Uh, right. I, I sort of, I found myself wanting to, uh, to embed myself more into that environment. Um, and as a math major, I, I was realizing that I was spending a lot more time in my room, um, mm -hmm. sort of isolated doing problem sets and, and sort of doing, uh, doing work that for me didn't necessarily correlate to the work that I wanted to do in terms of working with young people. I was much more interested in sort of pedagogy and, and sort of the psychology and, and sort of understanding how human beings sort of work. Um, and, and math, becoming a math teacher was sort of just a vehicle to, uh, to be able to have access to young people, right? Uh, right. And I, I remember sitting in my room, I, I used to live on the 22nd floor of, of a residential uh, building at UMass overlooking the pioneer valley uh and and i remember looking out my window and seeing all of my friends and, and folks you know hanging out at the basketball court right in front of you know right in our quad uh kind of looking out into the distance and, and realizing that uh i needed to be there uh where the people were um and not in my room and so uh that sort of uh that moment uh kind of triggered a series of 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 thoughts and, and sort of events that ultimately led me to uh, to shifting my major because I, I wanted to sort of be, I wanted my college experience both in the classroom and out of the classroom to be more about uh, those relationships um, and those connections with, with my peers and uh, sort of thinking about and, and, and understanding the environment, the physical and social environment that I was in. Um, I sort of felt that that was the best use of my time as a college student. Um, and, and the switch was, was pretty natural for me. I, uh, I had gone to a technical high school um, in Worcester. Um, 
and took up carpentry there. And so I was already used to the building and making of things. Um, so it wasn't a total, it wasn't a foreign sort of uh, territory for me, but, um, but it was one that I wasn't sure if I could ever explore in part because I didn't know any architects really. I didn't know any designers. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I had worked, I had worked at a, at a custom cabinetry, custom woodworking uh, firm while I was in high school and, and was sort of exposed to some possibilities, but had no idea about the sort of pathways to sort of, to really get into those positions. Um, you know, I, the, the building and making was, was something that I really, really enjoyed, but I always felt that I wanted to do more than just that. Uh, and so when I was applying to schools, there wasn't, it didn't really register as, as something that was possible in terms of pursuing design and architecture. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a total radical shift, uh, mm -hmm. but, um, but once I was, once I was at UMass, it sort of, it was a little bit, the, the path was a little bit clearer. I started meeting folks, you know, I met with some of the, the faculty members and professors at the architecture and design school, um, and just kind of learned a little bit about the program and sort of that, that sort of helped me realize or, or see the, the, the real possibility of, of, of entering this field and, and what, I could what I could possibly do with it beyond just sort of design and architecture. Okay, thank you so much. So yeah, I am curious about um, your work with youth and like, um, so basically I just wanna know like what are your favorite parts about like working with youth, like maybe what are the challenges that come with it? Um, I'm gonna ask you a little bit more about like identity mm -hmm. later on. So if you could like talk about like working with kids of different identities, of course. So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so like I said, for me, uh, the desire to work with young people um, ultimately stemmed from, from the awareness and, and realization of uh, that other people along my own journey sort of mm -hmm. were pivotal in, in, in kickstarting and sort of directing me. Um, mm -hmm onto the path that I am now. And so uh, I know firsthand from experience sort of the power of, of a relationship uh, with, a, with a mentor as, you know, as a young person. Um, mm -hmm. And not, not just in the capacity of, of uh, you know, sort of touch points here and there, but really sort of investing uh, time and energy beyond what is sort of required. Um, from from you know from the adult in, in in that position right like my my math teacher was somebody that I felt comfortable talking to about anything right she was somebody that uh, that looked out for me in in sort of every way uh, beyond just making sure that I was a, a good student and sort of doing my due diligence of of doing the work um, and so you know since uh, the moment I made the decision to switch over to design and architecture, you know, I had at this point I had already been uh, been working with youth. Uh, my my pops uh, is is somebody that uh, had worked with young people for a, a, a good chunk of his life, uh, kickstarting sort of youth programs and, and youth center in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, when he was younger. In part because he also had uh, folks in the community that sort of looked out for him when he was younger and sort of uh you know facing similar challenges uh in terms of uh the things that he was exposed to and sort of caught up in right um and so it was a very it's, it was a very natural sort of uh natural space for me to occupy in part because i it was so uh transformative in my own life um and so the moment i switched over to design architecture and kind of knew that i was stepping away from education in a sort of traditional Sense, um, I began thinking about how I can sort of uh, connect design and architecture uh, to young people um, as a means for them to, to start to better understand their own environments, uh, better understand their, their own power and agency in, in altering and transforming those environments. Uh, because as, as a young person, particularly, uh, uh, you know, 
in, in the world that we live in, uh, you often feel very powerless uh, and, and very voiceless, right? Um, we've seen waves of young people in, in recent times, right? Uh, kind of step up and, and garner uh, national and international attention, which is amazing to see uh, because that wasn't, you know, 10 years ago, that wasn't really a possibility for folks, right? It's, it's, it's become a possibility in large part because of the web and, and, and people having access to millions of people. Um, but when I was growing up, you know, that wasn't the idea that you could, the idea that you had a voice uh, as a young person or, uh, and not just a voice, but a voice that was, that was acknowledged and recognized and valued. Um, that idea felt very foreign. Um, and so, uh, you know, as, as I sort of moved through design and architecture school and, and started to, to develop and, and uh, inform my own uh, thinking and, and, and learning, uh, I started sort of connecting dots between uh, the, the built environment and the physical world that we occupy and some of the experiences that I had as a young person, right? Growing up in a public housing project that uh, felt like, felt like you were moving through a cell, uh, right? You know, like you, you, you can walk outside your door, you can leave your house, uh, your apartment, but don't feel trapped in this, uh, in this environment. Um, that certainly forces you to uh, to perceive the world, but also other people uh, from a very specific uh, point of view that isn't always necessarily fruitful uh, or beneficial to society at large, right? Um, and I didn't have I didn't have the language and vocabulary and, and, and knowledge base to to connect those dots when I was younger, um, but but I knew but I knew that there was something there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, the work that I that I do with young people in large part revolves around uh, making them aware that uh, their reality is not their fault, um, and and that there are a lot of uh, decisions and and movements at play that inform the way that we all live on a day to day basis, um, mm -hmm. whether explicitly or not. And so, uh, I think for young people to to, to come to that realization um, and to have sort of that, have that weight taken off of their, their shoulders, right? This burden that uh, you are where you are because of you and, and solely your decisions. Um, for young people that are, you know, experiencing uh, traumatic, uh, traumatic events throughout their lives, uh, that's a very liberating moment. Um, and so I would say a lot of a lot of the work is sort of centered around that you know the the desire or the goal to liberate young people, um, mm -hmm. right? To sort of to to remind them of their own power uh, and and intellect and and to give them space to to participate in real conversations uh, that are that are taking place and not just not just vocally but. Uh, through their work, uh, through the things that they put out into the world, um, I've worked with uh, I've worked with young people um, as you know as young as you know three or four years old up up through high school. Um, the majority of the work that I've done uh, has engaged high school students in part because of the the, the sort of the logistical challenges or hurdles right of of. Mm -hmm constructing things and using power tools and things of that nature um, but but I would say that you know the the I would say that young people as as young as just a few years old have uh, have a lot of insight into the world that uh, we as as adults often uh, take for granted and and don't consider because there's this sort of idea that you know, the longer the longer you've been around, the more the more seasoned you are, uh, and the more knowledgeable you are. So, what's you know, there, there's nothing that young people know that we don't know, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that that's t completely false, right? I think you know, I've learned just as much from three and four year olds than I have from you know professors of mine, right? And so, um, I think that you know, engaging. Engaging young people across the spectrum is important. Um, 
but a lot of my work has centered around high school students in large part because we're we're fabricating uh, and building things, um, which is is not impossible to do with younger kids, uh, but it is uh, it is a little bit easier logistically to do with with older kids. Um, and then I would say that you know for at least for the kids that I've worked with, uh, particularly here in New Orleans, you know, high school is, is high, a lot of these, these young people are sort of at a point in their lives where, you know, the decisions that they make every single day are, are that much, are, are magnified that much more because uh, they, they have the ability to, uh, to propel, propel or deter uh, in very serious ways uh, their past, right? Um, some of these, some of these young people are like, this is their last opportunity, right? To sort of, uh, to to figure something out that works for them um, before they get caught up in the in the systems that we all that we all know uh, know are at play, right? Um, a lot of these kids are, uh, a lot of these young people are coming from, you know, challenged, uh, challenging neighborhoods, uh, you know, are exposed to to violence and drugs and and crime, right? And so uh, and all of all of those things have uh, have sort of design implications, right, or or roots, um, but it's their realities, right. And so even if they're not, even if it's not their fault or the faults of of the, the folks around them, it's the world that they live in. And so um, they don't they don't have as many opportunities. And so uh, I find that that age range of like middle school and high school is is really a sort of pivotal moment to, to capture people um, before they make a decision that may uh, may force them to to throw their lives away uh, you know to, to put it not so lightly um, and so I think that's an important demographic uh, to engage in. and also uh, you know they're they're getting to the at, at that age they're getting to the point where they very, very soon will actually have uh, more agency uh, and power, right, in terms of being able to vote, in terms of being able to participate in sort of civic processes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so making, you know, catch, catching them at that age uh, where they're still willing uh, to absorb, um, uh, I think it's really important. And also it's just a fun, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun age range and, and group to work with, you know, young Young people keep me young uh, and keep me abreast of the things that uh, that are that are true and, and sort of on the ground. And uh, I think it's important for all of us as adults to to always maintain uh, those lines to to that uh, to those previous generations because it's uh, it's what allows us to sort of stay grounded uh, in a lot of ways. A lot of the work that I've done uh, throughout. Um, whether it's in Massachusetts or New Orleans or elsewhere, um, by and large has always been young people that come from inner city environments. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Typically black and brown uh, youth. Um, and so all that to say is that a lot of them have had similar experiences uh, and are, uh, and that's, you know, that's the, that's the result of, you know, the, centuries of of uh of systemic oppression and injustices that exist right in this country mm-hmm. um and so though the the experiences i would say uh are similar um that i would say that's what allows me to that's one of the main things that allows me to to develop honest relationships with young people uh in mm-hmm. in various uh environments um is to add my lived experience is very similar to theirs. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, I grew up in a in a neighborhood that was, uh, you know, pretty violent growing up. Right, like you know, ambulances and fire and fire trucks would have often have police escorts. Right, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen people get shot and killed. Right, uh, I've been around drugs. I've I've handled drugs, I've carried weapons, right? Like I've been in that world. And so uh, when I'm working with young people that come from communities where those things are present, uh, it gives me an honest place to approach them with from. Um, and, and 
but I will say that, you know, working with young people in New Orleans, um, you know, New Orleans is so rich in its, in its history and culture. Um, and uh, I, think it's, I think it's the most saturated uh, city uh, in the world in terms of creativity. Uh, every, every person that I know in the city seems to, to be able to do something amazing. Um, and young people are no different. Um, you know, for, for a lot of young people in the city, uh, the challenge becomes uh, having outlets to, to allow that greatness to, to shine. Um, mm. And so I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily different uh, in a lot of ways, but there are, there are different realities that young people in the city uh, are still dealing with, right? The, the trauma of Katrina is still very present um, in a lot of young people. Uh, you know, I can't remember what the exact figures are, but it's something insane, like 60% or something like that of young people in the city have seen some, or 40% have seen, uh, have seen someone get killed, right? um, have witnessed a, a, a death. Uh, so uh, young people in the city are certainly exposed uh, over and over again uh, to large traumatic life experiences. Um, and, you know, for, for some of the young people that I've worked with, you know, they were, you know, they were kids when Katrina hit, but the, the, the legacy of that, of that disaster was, is still very much present, uh, and mm -hmm. is still very palpable. Um, and, you know, their neighborhoods reflect it, right? Uh, you know, the, the sidewalks, you know, the crumbling sidewalks. The, the streets full of potholes, the vacant and blighted houses, right? Um, and so there's this sort of perpetual, uh, perpetual condition of living, uh, of living with trauma uh, in the city that uh, is true for a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the city's population, especially you know, the city's native population um, that, that remains uh, post Katrina, but uh, I think for young people, um, it's it's really prevalent. Um, in part because a lot of the a lot of the the resources and amenities and spaces that uh, you typically would expect to be present for young people uh, have shifted so much uh, since the storm. Right, schools are no longer the same as what they used to be. Uh, you know, you can't just go to school and be a kid from New Orleans, right? You have to go to school and, and be a kid from New Orleans that has to uh, live up to the expectations of a charter network that's not from this city, that doesn't understand the culture uh, and the nuances of how and why people move the way they do in the city, right? And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of obstacles uh, that are thrown uh, in the ways, in the past of, of young people in the city. Um, which makes it sometimes makes it a you know makes it more challenging for sure. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to contrast it, right? Like I, I did, I worked out of school. Uh, I worked out of school just outside the city in in, uh, in Metairie, a private school for for a short time, and um, you know that was a totally different environment, right? You know, I was working with young people uh, in that environment that came from very wealthy families, uh, had a lot of resources, had access to, uh, to equipment and things that other that young people in, in New Orleans couldn't, couldn't even dream of. Um, and you could see the amount of possibility that they saw uh, every time they opened their mouths, right? Uh, and it just, it, it just proves sort of the, the, the range of experiences that exists uh, for young people um, and how sort of having stability and resources and, and access and people in your corner that, that can, that have sort of charted those waters before sort of helping you navigate um, the difference that all of that makes. Um, so yeah, I would say, uh, all that to say is yeah, New Orleans is, uh, the New Orleans is a is a special place uh, in and of itself, and uh, I think that 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 cultivates a certain uh, a certain 
perspective and, and way to think about life and everybody that is from this city and anyone that's spent significant time in the city. Um, and young people certainly, uh, certainly are part of that as well. So I've worked, you know, I've worked in environments where design thinking is, is, is the thing, uh, but I'm also somebody that was sort of trained and, and educated as a designer and architect, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I've, I see, I sort of see the value of design thinking uh, as, as, a, as a practice. Uh, Mm-hmm. But I, I certainly over the, like over the years, I certainly have struggled with uh, with with the notion or the idea that everybody uh, can and should uh, uh, employ these practices um, and tools. Mm-hmm. Design thinking at, at a sort of basic level, right? It's it's the ability to think, the ability to think in the ways that designers do. Right. Uh, I, I guess that's a, a sort of basic definition of it. Um, and really what it is, is it's, it's creativity, right? It's, it's problem solving, it's critical thinking. Um, mm-hmm. It's being able to zoom in and out uh, when appropriate and necessary. Um, it's, it's being able to, uh, to, to ask questions, uh, and and listen um Mm -hmm. and for me like those uh those are those are characteristics and uh and and skill sets that i would i would hope every human being uh can can sort of uh can include in their arsenal right um and so i guess yeah i mean i i think if if there's a if there's a critique that i a critique that I have of design thinking it's that uh, it's that it's something revolutionary uh, or uh, or innovative um, mm-hmm. so at at the core it's uh, it's trying to uh, it's trying to sort of break down the processes of of living fruitful lives uh, that are meaningful and purposeful um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of different worlds that, that employ design thinking strategies and tools. Um, and I don't think that those things are always necessarily aligned with, uh, with the, the true purpose and intention of design, uh, at least by, by sort of my by my standards, right? Which is like design should solve problems for other people, right? First and foremost. Um, and uh, unfortunately we live in a capitalistic world that, uh, that tries to ascribe value to all things. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's created an environment where, you know, I feel like the way that the business sector has uh, has latched onto design thinking uh, and sort of more more kind of global capitalistic uh, entities. Um, it's sort of, it, in some ways, it's it's created this environment where like all of us can solve problems very easily by just like throwing up a bunch of post-it notes on the wall uh, with these ideas, right? Um, right? And that's sort of been the uh, that's been the the idea, or or like for me, the sort of how I perceived the design thinking movement, if you will, uh, to uh, to present itself. And so I think a lot of it just has to do with communication uh, and how things are how things are presented and communicated. Uh, you know, design thinking is not a radical new approach to to looking at the world. In fact, it's uh, it's the process that. Uh, creatives and creators uh, have deployed since the beginning of, of time, um, right? We're just finding new ways to package it, uh, to be able to roll it out and, and monetize it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and sort of sell it as a, as a service. Um, and so I think that th- those, are, those are some of the, the like struggles that, I've, that I have with design thinking. Um, is sort of, it's really uh, 
kind of comes down to like intention uh, and purpose. Um, and, I, and like I said, I, I, I was in the, the school that I worked at uh, for a short period of time. Um, you know, like we, it was sort of branded as design thinking, right? Like I was working with, with teachers and, and educators, helping them develop projects and, and practices uh, that incorporated their curriculum um, and allowed them to uh, push their students a little bit further. Um, but, you know, I, I am somebody that went to school for six years uh, to, to learn about design and architecture. And so there's, there's a, a broad base uh, of knowledge that I have uh, that informs the way that I move as a designer, right? And for the folks that I was working with, they didn't have that same uh, critical base um, to, to sort of, to, to jump off from, right? And so uh, it was sort of like trying to force, uh, you know, force an issue uh, um, or force folks to, to sort of move in a certain way that wasn't necessarily uh, comfortable or true to them um, or their experience. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's, I, I appreciate for sure the, I see a lot of value in the process uh, and, and the sort of tools and, you know, the ideals of the world and, you know, the frog design and like these folks that, uh, that have found ways to, uh, to catalog the process. Um, but I, I definitely struggle with, uh, with its, with the way that it's utilized and sort of, uh, promoted um, to the larger world uh, in part because I, I think it's, I don't think that, I don't think that design can solve everything. <laughs> At the end of the day, the thing that, uh, the thing that I think matters the most, um, regardless of whether you're a designer, uh, a seasoned designer or someone that's just coming into this world um, and, and maybe looking at it more from sort of the quote unquote design thinking lens than, and traditional design. Um, I think there's a certain amount of uh, humility uh, that that we all need to uh, ensure we we are are starting with. Um, there's a certain amount of uh, integrity uh, that that is needed to to do this work correctly um, and honestly. Um, and I think. At the end of the day, we all we we sort of have to remind ourselves that uh, all of the work that we do is uh, because of and for people, um, and uh, it's very easy to to get caught up in the process. It's very easy to get caught up in the technology and the tools uh, and the sort of shiny objects, um, and forget that at the end end of the day what we're talking about here is people right uh i tell my students all the time that architecture is not, not about buildings right architecture is, is about people um it's it's about how we all live and move through the world um because that is that ultimately shapes the way that we uh see ourselves uh and and see our environments right and 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 our our social our social fabrics, our, our built environments. Um, and so I would say, uh, you know, be, uh, be a student uh, as much as you can uh, throughout the process um, and never, never feel like, uh, never feel like, or allow yourself to feel like you're bigger, uh, you're bigger than the process or uh, bigger than the work, which is, which sounds very, uh, I don't know, sounds very standard uh, when it's articulated out loud, but uh, I think it's very easy to forget that, you know, the reason, the reason why all of us are here is to, uh, is to improve the lives of people, um, whether you're a designer or not, right? Like that's, that's the, 
if, if, if our goal as human beings is to, uh, is to create environments that allow the human race to, uh, to live as long and as fruitful as possible, right? Then at the end of the day, all of our jobs is to, is to make, make the worlds that we live in a little bit easier for human beings to, to exist in. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, lean into it as much as you can, um, but remind yourself that, uh, and, and create opportunities for you to sort of pause and, and, and zoom out um, and, and remind yourself of the larger picture of why, of why this matters and why, why it's important and why you're doing it uh, to begin with. And if, if, we want to, if we want to create sort of diversity uh, in, in the world and, and perspectives, I think it's, it's important that we uh, create space to document as many, uh, as many of these perspectives as, as possible. And so Wow, that was a super awesome listen, uh, as usual. I love listening to uh, all these designers' different perspectives on the field. Uh, so yeah, let's just maybe talk a little bit about what we thought. So Max, how do you feel like place and identity impacted Jose's work? Well, Jose makes sure to emphasize the fact that he grew up in a housing project, as he feels his upbringing there has shaped much of his life and what followed. Um, stuff from how he, he's he has perceived the the world um, to what he has chosen to be passionate about are all affected by the fact that he grew up in a housing project. His environment is what led to him to do the work that he does today, and a lot of people name their environment as motivating factors for their their, their discipline. So this reminds me a little bit of the nature versus nurture argument, and in this case, it would be nature that really imp impacted Cottle's work. I can't imagine what it's like living in the projects, um, but everyone I've spoken to who has lived in a housing project or worked in one has always said that they need to get out and it isn't the place where they need to be. So it does make sense that that would be such a huge aspect of uh, Cotto's life. So uh, what about you, Michaelina? How do you feel that place and identity impacted his work? Uh, well, your, your perspective regarding nature versus nurture is really interesting. I think both someone's inherent nature as well as their external environment are both extremely impactful on who they become. So Jose, Jose does place a lot of emphasis on where he grew up, and it kind of reminds me of Omari Sousa's podcast in that people really need to feel a sense of worthiness and a belief that they can really, they can really like reach for the stars. So Jose's message to young people was that their reality is not their fault which I think is such an important thing for kids to hear who grow up in challenging situations because they're, you know, they're subjected to the, the whims of their surroundings and that isn't their fault. So he had some influences early on that helped motivate him and set him on the right path. Um, I think he refers to them as pivotal and I think those environmental influences are ultimately what set him on the path to become a designer. Well, um, so yeah, sorry, go ahead. Did you have a thought? Yeah, I just, I completely agree with, uh, what you're saying um his he made sure he sounds like he has a lot of pride on where he grew up at all it's not that he's ashamed of where he grew up it's just that where he grew up is not somewhere you would want to be for the rest of your life so he had to get out and that's exactly what he did and till this day uh the housing projects where he grew up is still part of him and what he's doing as a as a human being yeah i I, I think it's uh, really interesting when people talk about their roots like that. Um, so what do you feel like you learned from Jose about design, design thinking, and social innovation? So um, from his podcast, uh, he, had a, he talked about this math teacher he had who kept pushing him, who didn't let him fall behind. And this, the impact that this teacher had on him really helped Kato see the importance in teachers and mentors for young students, especially for the inner city kids that grew up in environments just like Kato's. So those environments are usually underfunded and uh, are a stomping ground for crime, drugs, and STDs. So those areas badly need uh, people who care, such as teachers, um, public works workers, maybe it's a librarian, something, someone who cares, someone who can tell these kids, yeah, it's okay to get out and you can get out. So 
When uh, Kato realized that going into mathematics meant a lot of isolating himself from people, um, he began shifting his major into something that focused more on relationships, something that made him think about the physical and social environment around him, which is what really got him into design thinking. So I really pretty much learned that it helps these kids and who are less fortunate to have someone or an, an adult figure that cares about them, that pushes them and tries to get them on the right path. What about you, Michael? Lee? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I loved how Jose talked about wanting to build relationships, kind of like you were saying, and that for him, studying math would equate to working on problem sets, oftentimes isolated, and that wasn't necessarily a path that he wanted for himself. Uh, what this interview highlighted for me and a pattern I'm starting to see in a lot of these interviews is how collaborative a field uh, design and design thinking is uh, because designers come from all walks of life. They're introverted, they're extroverted, they occupy all the spaces in between, but this spirit of collaboration seems like a common thread and that's what really came through for me in Jose's interview. Um, and you know, I know the two of us aren't formal designers, so um, it's, it's always really interesting to hear these perspectives. So what advice do you feel like you took away from this episode as a non-designer uh, who, you know, you and I are now using design methods in our work with the Taylor Center? So what advice did you take away? Um, something that really uh, stood out uh, to me is that um, Cotto believes that design thinking is another one of those concepts that this world has found a way to repackage and monetize for the new age which is a common theme for many of the designers that we've listened to. They always seem to say that capitalism has a negative effect on design thinking. So Kato believes that design thinking is disguised by its flashy and new sounding branding, when in reality it's a simplified set of processes that designers have already been using for decades. So he find out, finds that while it can be useful in brainstorming and starting the design process, it can also make it seemed like a complex issues are are easy easily figured out with a couple of steps and post-it notes. So what really uh he's trying to say is that um just see design thinking as it is and not trying to make it into something else for whether that's for money or for what purpose. Um Design thinking can be complicated at times, but oftentimes it's not as complicated as uh, people make it seem to be. And I think that's really what I took away from it is that uh, design thinking could be as simple as one, two, three at times. And we, if, if that's the case, then we should stick with that and not try to make it uh, something else other times, whether that's for money or some other uh, purpose. Yeah, definitely. Design thinking can be simple. I, I also do agree that um, it can be used to figure out complex issues, and those are the things that aren't simple. So it's important to keep in mind that design thinking is a tool, you know, and when we have these complex issues at hand, we need to treat them as such. Um, you know, what really came through for me is that designers have all sorts of dreams that motivate them, and Jose's desire to connect with and inspire youth just as he was inspired in his childhood, kind of guided and informed his choices throughout his life. And what brings each designer to the field of design thinking is as unique as the designer themselves. Um, so yeah, I think here at the Taylor Center, we have a lot of graduate assistants with different backgrounds and we all came to design thinking in a different way. So I think that's, that's something pretty special and it helps me feel a little bit less of an imposter uh, trying to use design thinking methods in my work because People come to it in all different sorts of ways. Um, would you say that there's anything that Jose said that surprised you or that you didn't agree with or maybe something that inspired you? So something that inspired me is Kato's belief that the process can be exhausting. The technology can be complicated, but the goal is bigger than the process. So Kato encourages designers and non-designers alike to lean in. Remember the picture and why it's important to be engaging in this work in the first place. So just think about the big picture, not where you are, but where you're going is really important. So keep your eye on the target and don't budge and be resilient. Um, I love that. Yeah. What, what about you? Yeah. Is there anything you said that inspired you or you didn't agree with? Um, 
Yeah, I was really inspired by how he talks about how his desires to work with young people stemmed from the the people who were so impactful on his development in his formative years. And that becoming a math teacher was really just like a, a vehicle for him to be in contact with the youth he hoped he could someday also inspire. So it's really inspiring to hear someone so successful and happy with what they do reiterate that there are multiple pathways that one can take to the same end. There's no straight and narrow path, no one right way to do things. That as long as you're true to your passions, you'll find your way to a fulfilling career. Um, so that that was reassuring to me as well. Sounds good. Well, um, um, how does how does his work resonate with your experiences, the work you do in your discipline, your identities, and your communities? Um, well, my, my own path has involved a lot of self-exploration and in some ways setting off on a path without knowing where it necessarily will lead. That's kind of been what I've had to do. And I think a huge lesson is to have the confidence to just begin. In my field, which is public health nutrition, it's imperative that you do your due diligence and make sure your process is informed by evidence-based practices. But ultimately, a key ingredient is having faith in your own self-knowledge to begin something. And, you know, like you've said, um, to not get caught up in the process, even if you aren't sure where the path will lead, to just have the confidence to start. What do you feel like resonated with you? So, um... When asked for advice for non-designers, utilizing design thinking in their discipline, Kato encourages us to have humility, to not get caught up in the process, and remember the goal as well as the people. While design may have a flashy name and complicated vernacular, at the end of the day, we're all designing for people with the goal of making this world a better place. So I really took away from this that you should always uh, focus on the goal as well as your relationships with the people around you and just aim to to be pure, aim to be the best you can be. And I think when we all try our hardest to be decent people, to work uh, as hard as we possibly can on a project or whatever it is we're doing, that in, that in itself really makes the world a better place and makes the people around us appreciate us more. Well... Thank you, Michaeline, for joining us today. I enjoyed uh, uh, listening to this podcast with you and our discussion and uh, truly appreciate your opinion. And I hope that you would return to the Hello from the Pluriverse podcast soon. Absolutely. Yeah, I will see you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this interview from our Hello from the Pluriverse series. A special thank you to Arturo Escobar, the author of Designs for the Pluriverse, for opening the space for conversations about pluriversality in design. Many thanks as well to all of our interviewees, our design thinking student team, Ruby, Lupe, Delaney, Tran, and Wissal, the students of the Fall 2019 SICE 30 class, Levante, Lucas, our editor, and the rest of the team at the Taylor Center at Tulane. If you have any suggestions for our program, please email your comments, suggestions, and questions to taylor at tulane.edu. And also you can visit our website at taylor.tulane.edu.